So hi, Ina. Hello, Ma'am Pia. Today, we're starting off our series on talking about psychology, how to relate psychology to our personal lives, and why should we study it and learn to apply it in our daily lives anyway. So I guess we can begin with uh, discussing the broader topic of why should we study psychology? Okay. <laughs> well, first of all, I don't know about the word should. There's, I, I don't believe in the word should. Uh, I, I'm so, just like, why would we want to study mm-hmm. psychology? Why would we want? I, I'm hoping everybody's in the room taking up psychology because they want to, not because they should. Honestly, I don't think anybody mm-hmm. takes psychology because they should. It's not that kind of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like what is it about psychology that makes it extremely helpful and relevant and good in a person's life to know these theories? Um, you know, you know, I, I'm sorry to throw this question back at you yeah. immediately, but I mm-hmm. have an answer. You, uh, I mm-hmm. mean, you're a psychology student. You just graduated. Yes, I just how's graduated. Psychology, how's psychology been helpful to you so far? Well, um, I think I took it at a time in my life when I was going through a, a tough emotional experience. And I think just the insight into understanding how the brain works or how we learn to cope with things, how we understand things and process things gave me a lot of comfort and and equipped me, I guess, with the awareness to become aware of my own uh, thought patterns, behavioral patterns, and kind of also get get a sense of how to improve um, my own reactions to things and how I think through and think through things and behave. So... Would you say it's the same for you, ma'am? Like why you started developing an interest in psychology? I entered psychology really without any intention of becoming a psychologist. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just like you, the moment I started studying it, or when, especially when I started uh, really going into the, the subjects, particularly dev psych and um, personality psych, it was interesting to see and to really understand how people worked like what what led to certain behaviors or why certain behaviors are done by certain people at a certain age mm-hmm. um, um, all of that was really quite interesting um, and i guess it was also how my professors back then taught it uh, because they always asked us to see how it was true for us in our own lives so again like the camera was directed at me the student like I was just directing it at you Um, so I think studying psychology is relevant because it makes you think about yourself Mm -hmm. It makes and, and by doing that, it helps you understand yourself. And when you understand yourself, um, for example, if you're able to break down your behaviors into um, the whys of it, the hows of it, the where is this rooted mm-hmm. of it, and um, even down to the what are its effects, mm-hmm. right? And if this leads to that effect, do I want that effect 
therefore should I do this action? Mm -hmm. um, I think that makes it uh, a little more obvious as to how valuable it could be, not just to people who want to be psychologists, but to people who want to be anything, because mm -hmm. the whys and hows of action and the consequences of action um, are just things that are good to know, good to think mm -hmm. about. And that's what makes it very valuable. So it helps you first and foremost to understand yourself. And then next, of course, is it helps you understand other people because these theories are not just applicable to you personally, otherwise they wouldn't, they wouldn't be psycholo psychological theories. They'd just be personal <laughs> theories. Um, they help us understand other people. And so it helps, you know, with relationships, it helps with, you know, understanding your parents, it helps with understanding um, your, your friends. Uh, so I think it's relevant for everybody. Mm -hmm. And in the long run, um, yeah, it, because all of our endeavors in life do involve other people then it's very relevant across everything any discipline mm -hmm. um as long as you know you, you talk to people or have relationships mm -hmm. it's relevant very well said especially since our the uh social relationships are the cornerstone of our life and how we branch out into different uh career paths mm -hmm. or explore new fields of interest are also uh, anchored in our relationships with people and being able to relate to other people well. Yeah. So thank you, ma'am, for that answer. And um, let's talk about, for example, when you did start uh, venturing into psychology, um, what specializations in psychology have interested you and why? Okay. This, this question, actually, um, I'm glad this gets to be asked. When I was taking up psych, I didn't really know like what the psych career would be like. Um, because one, back then, it was new. It was very new in the Philippines. I think when I was in college, um, this, the law hadn't been passed. There were no boards. Um, um, people didn't go to therapy mm -hmm. uh, a lot yet back then. Um, but in general, people think, okay, psychologists are therapists. Okay, that's one field okay, of specialization. You can become a counseling psychologist. That's actually something that I do. So I do therapy. And the counseling psychologist is someone who, uh, in the Philippines, you take a psych, or actually, even if it's a non psychiatrist, <laughs> um, you take an MA in psychology and then you take the boards and then you get trained and get supervised mm -hmm. to become a counseling psychologist that's the usual idea that people have yes, when you say psychologist yes. right so mm -hmm. that's what we mean when we say we i practice i am i do therapy i'm I am a counseling or a clinical psychologist mm -hmm. um right and even here in the Philippines, when you say clinical psychologist, um, technically what it means is you take you took a PhD in clinical psych, but mm -hmm. not all of us who take on clinical cases are clinical PhD. Mm -hmm. um, like for example, I do not have a PhD in clinical mm -hmm. psych, but I do take on clinical cases. Mm -hmm. What would so, you mean by clinical cases, ma'am? 
um, my I have clients who have um, formal diagnoses mm-hmm. um, or heavy cases like trauma, uh, um, like heavy cases of depression, major depression, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, diagnosis of anxiety. So actually, I work very closely with um, psychiatrists too, okay, mm-hmm. because many of my clients also need um, mm-hmm. medication. So mm-hmm. I'm the one who does the talk therapy with them, and then they go to mm-hmm. their psychiatrist for their meds. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, so now that we're here, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists are different. Okay? To become a psychiatrist, you need an MD, okay? so that you uh, and. Uh, usually their view is the medical model. Mm-hmm. So it's more towards psychopharmacology, the prescription of medication and mm-hmm. um, more towards the body and yes. what adjustments the body needs to make. And mm-hmm. then the psychologist, although of course I, I do still keep track of these things. Mm-hmm. I ask my clients about their meds, I ask my clients about their, you know, exercise routine and their sleeping mm-hmm. habits and their eating habits mm-hmm. etc it still does take part but but that's not my expertise mm-hmm. okay it's just something i consider um but then not all psychologists are are therapists um some uh psychologists are in psychology through research okay mm-hmm. so um here is where um, social psychologists and de- developmental psychologists come come in. Um, developmental psychologists are people who do research or um, develop interventions for um, with the uh, well, developmental theories in consideration. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this means that they look at um, stages in mm-hmm. a person's life mm-hmm. and how people are different at each stage okay? mm-hmm. and they design interventions or they research um, particular aspects of um, you know for example adolescence mm-hmm. or uh, late late life okay? mm-hmm. um, I see. and then social psych is another interesting field where mm-hmm. uh, they look at um, bigger phenomena mm-hmm. they look at for example the phenomena of peace mm-hmm. or uh, or um you know what gets people to vote or not vote mm-hmm. or um so bigger social phenomena mm-hmm. is what they they actually research um there's also personality psych mm-hmm. um personality psych research uh, is research into what are the things that make up a person's personality mm-hmm. so like traits um uh, what is the filipino personality made up of what are the major traits that are found and make up the filipino personality mm-hmm. um and that's research okay and so me i'm not a research psych- uh research um, psychologist mm-hmm. um but some psychologists are that some psychologists mm-hmm. do research and not practice some people just practice and don't do research some people do both um so there i've dabbled in a lot of them but mm-hmm. i found that my love really it belongs to practice so yeah practice. so there. counseling and uh clinical psychology 
Okay. You work with a lot of psychiatrists as well. So a lot of uh, dealing with mental health. You yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So now that we've talked about what there, uh, the different kinds of fields there are in psychology and whom psychology is relevant for, maybe we can talk about now how psychology began to emerge as a field or as a study. So um, what perspectives have shaped its development from the start? I know that um, the ancient Greeks uh, started to hypothesize about uh, where does the human psyche come from or what makes us us and gradually it uh, I, I believe it started with uh, structuralism so could you tell us about what structural what structuralism is and how it's relevant to us right now how can we how do we see it in our everyday lives right now okay <laughs> all right so those two things structuralism and functionalism I like your question, like how is it relevant? Why do I care? <laughs> um, but if you look at, if you, if you try just now, if you are trying to understand a person's mind and how a person thinks, it's still a good thing to go back to structuralism and functionalism. Mm -hmm. The structuralism is about what is there. What are the components of a mind mm -hmm. so when you ask that question you're like huh what do you mean the components of a mind mm -hmm. right so just now i want you to kind of close your eyes and, and try to answer that question what are the components of my mind mm -hmm. okay so when you look at your mind and you imagine your mind what's there so you, you can open your eyes like what I do you notice say thoughts or okay. words all right. So you're when you look at chatter. something, when you look at something, and then it makes you think, "Oh, this is blue," or okay. "This is a, a vase." And okay. so your thoughts and um, the parts of your thoughts that are uh, composed of sensory inputs, like your visuals, uh, mm -hmm. um, maybe even sounds, but the, all of those are components of thought. Okay, so thought, sensorial, um, material, what else? Is that all that's inside? Um, I, there are emotions, would you okay. say? Emotion is, yeah. a, is a component, so. Yeah, so your emotional world. Feeling happy or sad sometimes. Or every time I throw the question at you and you're not ready, you feel a little, ah, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, right. a little nervous. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. So, so there's that. Those are the structures of your mind. Those are the structures of your inner world. And that's what the, the movement of structuralism tried to do. They tried to look inside and they tried to see um, by observing what can we, uh, what form can we see and observe when we look inside in this way. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, even just that um, in more uh, current um, movements in psychology like mindfulness um, if you're familiar or if, you know anybody in the class is familiar um, there are very strong functional uh, structural components in the meditations that you do you're, you're, you meditate and to notice your thoughts you meditate to notice your emotions mm -hmm. you you meditate on uh, what you see and what you hear and what you taste and what you smell and what you sense uh, around you. All of these things were 
very much like what they were trying to label and what they were trying to describe mm -hmm. when the structuralists started with this whole um, way of thinking about people. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, this, is, this was a way of observing and acknowledging something that couldn't be readily observed uh, just by looking at a person this is the inner world so that's the value of structure mm -hmm. so it's you would say like the the cultivating the self-awareness first and then yes. being able to reflect on the contents of the mind and how they how we so how do the functionalism plays into it in um, the functionalists mm -hmm. um, so the structuralists wanted to label wanted mm -hmm. to see the, the forms mm -hmm. right um, the functionalists, what they wanted to do was to say, um, you can't really measure anything uh, you, uh, because all you have is um, observation and all we can, oh, the only person who can observe what's happening inside of you is you. So mm -hmm. there's nothing very objective about that. So, so the functionalists actually said, check that out. And w what's more important is that we find how it works. Mm. how we adapt, how we use our minds uh, to adapt to everyday life, to our functions, mm -hmm. to um, what we need to do, work, play, study, etc. That's what's important. So functionalism is about how our brains, our minds, our internal world adapts to our external world. Mm -hmm. So think about how you um, learn, okay? how you problem solve, how you are able to think about how to cook an egg versus how you are able to think about and do, if you know how, uh, ride a bike. Mm -hmm. okay? Those are two different functions, but somehow our minds know how to do it those are actually two mechanical functions. Mm -hmm. But then suppose you learn how to read a story, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and by reading, you're able to give yourself certain experiences of wonder, of uh, um, dreams. And by dreams, I mean like goals. Mm -hmm. So that is a function of the mind. What is that for? How does that help you survive, adapt? become uh, uh, a person in this world? And mm -hmm. that's, that's, those are the kinds of questions that the functionalists were more interested in. So they're very different. They're very different, but um, you can see how those two uh, ideas, um, schools of uh, thought, mm -hmm. uh, were foundational to what we now know mm -hmm. as psychology. Um, yeah, just those two questions, yeah. right? Those are like how to ride a bike, how to cook an egg. There's so many ways to cook yeah. eggs. Yes, uh, yes. And how to dream, how to have goals for yourself. Those are all different functions of the mind. What are they for? How do they help us live? How do they help us adapt in society? Mm -hmm. Those are very functional uh, kind of questions. So from learning the contents of what the mind was, and um, learning how to apply it and use it in the different aspects of our lives. 
um, it kind of also moved towards this, uh, this, this Gestaltian movement or the Gestalt movement of how experiences or the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So greater than the, um, the contents that we were labeling a while mm -hmm. ago or mm -hmm. fitting into certain categories of our lives. So can you tell us more about what does that actually mean? Like the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Okay, all right. So the exercise, I usually have an exercise here that I, I do in class, but since now, uh, well, okay, for those who are watching this in video, um, okay, for, the, for those who are listening, maybe you just try an, an image, any image, Okay, anything. Oh my God, you can be looking at your phone. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to look at my phone. Mm -hmm. Okay. okay. You, uh, what are you looking I'll, at? I'll do that with you. Okay, I'll, so I'll you're going to look at your phone. Mm -hmm. So when you look at your phone, okay, you can um, peel it out. Okay, mm -hmm. it has edges. Mm -hmm. It has flat surfaces. Mm -hmm. It has a function. Mm -hmm. Right? You use it all. Mm -hmm. Text, the text and surf. communicate with people like right. on social media. All right, those are its different parts. Mm -hmm. okay. But when you lose a phone, have you ever lost a phone? Mm -hmm. Yes. Have and you ever broken it's a been, phone? Yes. Okay. Or, mm -hmm. When that happens, what? How do you feel? It it almost feels like you're losing a limb because right. it's not just the phone that you're losing, but I guess the being able to connect with other people and being able to entertain yourself when it's needed. Right. So and sometimes it's the phone itself. Mm -hmm. Like this object is something that you have attached some mm -hmm. kind of value to that is not just I mean, all right, fine, phones are expensive. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it hurts more than that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It's not the cost of it, which is a uh, one of the aspects of it. A part of it is the cost. A part of it is the surfaces of it. A part of it is the functions of it. Mm -hmm. A part of it is what it contains, memories. Uh, a part of it is what you use it for. But putting all of that together, that is your experience of your phone. Mm -hmm. That is, so the gestalt of a phone is why you have that feeling. The feeling of attachment or of, yeah you don't attach to the, just the surfaces and the lines mm -hmm. and the functions mm -hmm. you attach to it as a whole mm -hmm. and and that's why like when when i lose a phone it's almost like you you lost like mm -hmm. like like you know everything's in the cloud mm -hmm. for example yes you know everything's in the cloud and you're gonna you can recover all of it back but it still hurts. Yeah, it feels like you've been through a lot with that phone. Yes. And <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. right. So that experience is actually something um, that portrays the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Okay. Yeah. Or like people. Okay. Mm -hmm. For example, you. Right? Mm -hmm. um, you can write a list about all the things that I know about Ina. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> and we have to write a list about all the things she knows about me mm -hmm. okay um, but the, that list 
the parts, okay? Even if it includes descriptions of, for example, Pia has green hair. Sometimes it's not green. She likes makeup. Um, she's a psychologist. Even if I list all of those things, the Pia, that is the whole, is the whole, the gestalt, the experience of that, is more than just the list, any list that could be made of me. And the same is true for you. So that's that's, that's the that's uh, that's the gestalt movement. Of course, the way it was studied before was very um, was a, just a lot more technical than my explanation mm -hmm. for it. So they actually uh, went to and the research that they, they would do were very sensorial. Mm -hmm. um, like for example, um, uh, when you look at an image, okay. Uh, if you break an image up into, um, uh, you know, those uh, visual, what do you call that? Um, like optical illusions. Optical illusions. Yes. <laughs> those yeah. optical illusions where um, um, it's like your mind fills in the blanks. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's just a bunch of lines, but you can see that it's a figure, but actually it's just a bunch of lines. But because of our mind's um, propensity to gestalt, mm -hmm. okay, um, fill in the blanks, basically. Fills in the blanks. Mm -hmm. You see the greater whole, not mm -hmm. just the parts. Mm -hmm. Okay, so right. so yeah, it was um, they studied lines and mm -hmm. um, uh, sensory. Uh, sensory factors. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. All right. So that is the gestalt perspective. And now I guess uh, moving on to a very prominent figure in psychology, who, uh, uh, Sigmund Freud, who coined the term psychoanalysis. So uh -huh. how, who was Freud and why was he so popular anyway? Why does everyone think of Freud when we think about psychology right well because he was a very interesting man <laughs> and his ideas were very interesting mm -hmm. um although of course i won't i won't take away from that but his ideas are very important mm -hmm. it's just that their the ideas were also quite shocking uh, and time. very yes. easily very easily sensationalized mm -hmm. even until now yeah that's <laughs> true it's that's why he's remembered until now Freud. Yeah. Right? So, what comes to mind when I say Sigmund Freud? Uh, me. Yeah. S sex, probably. Right. That's, that's what everyone thinks when they hear about right. Freud. Yes. Right. So, because because so. it's quite central in his theory. Okay. Um. Uh, he actually called the stages uh, of development. Um, psychosexual stages, mm -hmm. and he talked a lot about how sex and aggression are basic drives of mm -hmm. um, human behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, he's, I don't know, every time I discuss the Oedipus complex, everyone's like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. Um, mm -hmm. But, but uh, Freud was a person who really, even though he was not really the first, okay, he, he was the one who really popularized and put together a lot of different ideas into what one might um, 
understand as a rather global uh, understand um, well because many of the theorists that followed him later mm -hmm. on expanded on his mm -hmm. ideas mm -hmm. um, he his theory was a good um, springboard okay so um, he was most importantly uh, credited mm -hmm. or, or maybe what he was one of his most important uh, uh, contributions was his um, turning of attention to what what he called the uh, the unconscious okay? so not everything that we are we are aware of mm -hmm. and this part that we are not aware of is called the unconscious and even if we are not aware of this many many things in our unconscious influence our behavior mm -hmm. and um so yeah there and he mm -hmm. said like many urges like um the urge urges regarding sex and mm -hmm. um, aggression mm -hmm. of course we also kind of um uh we noticed that he was born at a time when you know people were very repressed mm -hmm. and there were a lot of you know, societal uh, uh, structures mm -hmm. that made things. people very yes. repressed. That's yes. why, that's probably why uh, a lot of things were pushed into the unconscious. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a very, that's a modern way of understanding now, Freud. Um, consider, even considering that, I actually always ask the question, you know, when you turn on your TV or, or sorry, Nobody watches TV anymore. You turn on Netflix. Netflix and YouTube. Okay. Or no. YouTube. Okay. What are you likely to watch? Like a show. Yes. What shows? What shows are there? Uh, What's popular? Right now, there's yeah. NLO Holmes, I believe, and there's Emily in Paris. And uh, when I see what's popular, that okay. So, all right. Yeah. So, Enola Holmes. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen it. But oh, yeah. what's it about? It's about, I think she's the sister of Sherlock Holmes. So it's played by Millie Bobby Brown and right. Henry Cavill's in there. And yeah. is it also like a murder mystery kind of? I think thing? so. Although I've only seen uh, right. the trailer. Yeah, I'm assuming because it's like a Holmes mm -hmm. yeah. thing. So murder they're mystery, trying thriller kind of thing. to solve something, right? So it's about what? It's about what? Um, it's about the sister of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I think. but what's she doing? Yeah. So I really, I think she's also so solving mysteries. Although I could, I really, I'm not sure. And the so, mysteries usually involve. Um, I guess. Does it involve picnics? Yeah. And uh, um, like dinner. Mm -hmm. What do the mysteries involve? They usually involve. Uh, mysteries usually involve crimes. crimes. They usually involve uh, murders, maybe, or murders, uh, theft. Crimes. Yes. Right. Yes. And that's what, those are what kind of behaviors, if we look at Freud. Those, murders, mm -hmm. theft. So would, would Freud think that they're wrong? Or would... Why are we watching this? Why are we? Why do we enjoy watching about murders and theft 
maybe because there are human uh, instincts maybe or it we're, we all fall victim to thoughts about that sometimes yeah. for example when someone pisses us off yeah. and you you think about uh yeah but but not yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so so there's something in us that is attracted to these things mm-hmm. right why why do you watch action movies mm-hmm. yes yes and uh, we were just like the fantasy of, horror thing yeah. last night yeah yeah i watched um unsolved mysteries last night and there was something about right. ghosts and yeah. mm-hmm. i guess right. just that um i watched it because i was just curious uh the episode was about a tsunami that happened uh a few years ago and i think i watched it because there was also a part of me that was so curious about the impacts of uh natural disaster and how we are all prone to that sometimes i mean we're all vulnerable to that so if you look at just those the last five minutes we've been talking about how we people watch things that are about destruction mm-hmm. that are about aggression mm-hmm. that are about things that harm other people and we do that because we want to so that's a behavior mm-hmm. that is driven by something curiosity um wondering or even just pure wanting to be entertained Mm -hmm. but it is towards something rather aggressive Mm -hmm. right and freud would say well that is the basic drive for um that the aggressive drive Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean we're all aggressive but it means we're all aggressive somewhere down there And then right. the other, the other, the other movie that's popular is Emily in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, what about that? Okay, fine. That's not the aggressive drive. Mm-hmm. What what drive is that? It's, it's a movie about what? About probably love and exploring, uh, mm-hmm. love for another place, exploring yourself. Mm-hmm. So, is that another drive that Freud? Um, hypothesized about uh, is it? well it's about beauty <laughs> and um, yes. you know, pleasure mm-hmm. even a pleasure in new objects and new places um, I'm, I don't know does it have like a love story mm-hmm. in it I have no mm-hmm. idea yeah. is it? Uh, I actually love? I also really don't know I also watched a, a bit of the trailer but it uh, okay. my, my friends did say it's a feel good kind of um okay. romantic light okay vibe. there so, so yeah. anything with we put the word romantic on it it's mm-hmm. like okay right so mm-hmm. right and yeah almost any movie actually that you watch or anything that's popular has some kind of romantic mm-hmm. angle or it's just filled with attractive people mm-hmm. and why are we attracted to these people because they're attractive <laughs> and, and really that's that's what the other drive is that's what yeah. the sex drive is it's mm-hmm. that attraction to um sex mm-hmm. okay and mm-hmm. and whatever beautiful things and pleasure etc yes. and that's that's also something that freud talked about mm-hmm. so so if you any media or you know just 
you know, look out the window. Look before I would say look at billboards, uh, look at commercials, uh, look at how things are sold. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are the movies or, or the series that are popular? Always, it's about one way or another. It's about yeah. aggression or it's about sex. So, and that, and I say that is why we study Freud until now, because mm -hmm. in some way, what he said is still true. Mm -hmm. We still see it in the world until now. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't consciously watch this. I'm going to watch this because it's about sex, mm -hmm. <laughs> or I'm going to watch this because it's about, it satisfies my aggressive urges. No, because those are things that are in our unconscious. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. Even though we don't, we're not conscious of it. We're just drawn to these things. And yeah. people who make movies like know exactly that people are naturally drawn to these things. So, okay. yeah, yeah, probably because of Freud. Yeah, or or because we just know it naturally. Mm -hmm. We know it even without this theory. Um, we know it. We can feel it. Mm -hmm. um, so Freud actually just kind of brought to light or made conscious mm -hmm. something that is very unconscious in there mm -hmm. in all of us mm -hmm. so so there um, mm -hmm. um that's probably his most important contribution mm -hmm. we'll talk more about freud uh, yeah. later on in yeah. more detail but for now let's uh sprinkle a little bit of uh how come yes there. <laughs> yes yeah so um from Freud and psychoanalysis, how did it suddenly move to this movement called behaviorism, which almost seemed to reject everything that Freud said about the unconscious mind and uh, focus on behavior alone? So um, can we actually really study the behavior in isolation? And is that still okay. relevant until now? Well, behaviorism really actually was really, uh, it was almost, like a rejection of Freud mm -hmm. because yeah Freud's ideas were quite weird and and um uh they're very hard to study um because yeah how do you do that how do you dissect uh a human mind and say this part is unconscious and it's filled with sex and death um it's hard to do that and it's hard to do that with and without any kind of manipulation and we find that Freud's uh, methods weren't exactly very great either. <laughs> um, so the behaviorists came in because they uh, thought, oh, that's too hard. Okay, mm -hmm. You cannot really reliably scientifically study in that way. So let's put this idea of the mind out of research because it's useless because we can't study it. Mm -hmm. And now all we can study is whatever we can measure its um, behavior, whatever, only what we can observe and whatever we, uh, whatever it is that we can measure, that's what we're gonna um, study. So that's basically um, it. So that's the advantage. The advantage is that what, what, how you see people is um, very limited and therefore very uh, easier to study. Mm -hmm. uh, easier because you can measure it, mm -hmm. because it's very finite. Mm -hmm. 
and it's because it's um, observable. Okay. And there's a way of uh, wanting to control behavior and modify our own behaviors. It's that aspect of behaviorism, isn't there? Like, okay, yes. So behaviorists, um, when we talk about behaviorism, and again, we'll talk about this more later on, um, the ideas of conditioning okay, and uh, uh, behavior modification okay, will come in. Um, but basically what this is, it looks at behavior and then before behavior, what causes behavior and the consequences of behavior. And if you change one or the other, it looks at behavior like a formula, like a math equation. If you change one thing, uh, the cause, then you can change the behavior. And, or if you change the consequence, you can change something else. So if you like, change a variable, you can change something else. And that allows for more control of behavior. Um, so um, by paring it down into something very basic, some, uh, it, it allows for the idea mm -hmm. of more control mm -hmm. uh, in, in people's lives. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so on the one hand, Freud in psychoanalysis was very floaty and weird and um, mm -hmm. almost like uncontrollable. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, the behaviorists, behaviorist idea was very um, controlled mm -hmm. and very dry. Mm -hmm. um, but also at the same time, um, human beings not aren't quite mm -hmm. uh, clear cut. Exactly. And, um, and so that kind of inspired the next movement. So if the behaviorism was kind of a response to psychoanalysis, there was this new uh, movement called humanism, which was a response to behaviorism. So uh, why was it called humanism anyway? Well, the first two uh, movements, psychoanalysis and behaviorists, um, they were thought to be rather uh, deterministic. Because okay? so for, for um, Freud, um, our past, basically, or our, our unconscious, our, it, that's what creates our behavior. Okay? Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to control. So we are made from these basic drives that we are born with. And then for behaviorists, it's we are controlled by these, the stimuli in our environment. Mm -hmm. um, so the humanist said, mm, I don't think that's quite our experience as human beings. We do have some measure of control and choice in our lives. And that's why it's called humanistic perspective mm -hmm. because um, it focuses on, on that, our, our freedoms, mm -hmm. our, our, our choices, mm -hmm. our, our free will, uh, um, our, the, the fullest potential of becoming mm -hmm. a human person so it's about that it's it's a lot more optimistic mm -hmm. um and rather than deterministic mm -hmm. that's why it was very different mm -hmm. all right so from a humanistic perspective there's a, another uh perspective which is the biopsychological perspective which is uh, also quite contrary to humanism maybe it's very reductionist or tries to 
um, reduce behavior down to its component parts, right? So yeah. how are these concepts still applicable to uh, in our everyday lives, knowing the, that behavior or cognition is reducible to the activity of a neuron, for example? All right. So like biopsych the biopsychological perspective is like the cooler, younger brother of the behaviorist perspective. Mm-hmm. Because the behaviorists could only observe, you know, behavior, actions. Um, but by the, when the biopsychologists came in, they're like, no, we can actually look inside your brain mm-hmm. and trace where behavior is coming from it's because it's coming from levels of you know neurotransmitters Mm -hmm. it's coming from um uh we can measure your heart rate we can measure your uh your breathing we can measure your skin conductance how much you're sweating and that's how we know if you're anxious or not Mm -hmm. that's how we know if you're excited or attracted to someone Mm -hmm. your eye eye if your pupils dilate etc um so the biopsychological perspective is, um, yeah, it's, it's like that where it looks at human behavior as uh, a function of um, the hardware that we have, and mm-hmm. that's our bodies, mm-hmm. okay? or that's our biology. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of relevance, well, mm-hmm. we have our bodies, right? Our bodies are real. Mm-hmm. And that's where we live. We live in our bodies. And I don't know about anybody here who has not lived in their body. Um, but if you, because that is our hardware and that is our everyday experience, mm-hmm. then how can it not be relevant? Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I think the biopsychological perspective, uh, again, we're going to mm-hmm. take a whole chapter mm-hmm. on this. Mm-hmm. Yes, we'll discuss too. it later. Um, it actually allows us, it's not counter to Freud or the humanists, mm-hmm. okay? uh, but if that's the software, okay, the biopsychological perspective allows us mm-hmm. to look at the hardware. Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, for Freud, um, from Freud, we can talk about uh, the creative drive, Mm -hmm. the drive to, um, okay, it's called the sex drive, okay, the drive to create things, to to make something new, to, 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 to study, to Mm -hmm. consume things, to enjoy food, okay, Mm -hmm. um, that's the idea of it that's the software okay? that's the experience of it but we can only experience that with our hardware and that's where the biopsychological concept comes uh concepts come in um our drive to create okay um may be driven by particular parts of our brain okay like for example the dopamine reward system okay we want to make art or we want to connect with that person mm-hmm. because these things are firing in our brain. Um, whether one causes the other or not, is that's uh, mm-hmm. what actually causes behavior. That's a, actually a big and long um, 
debate mm -hmm. okay and we we're probably not going to go into that until you enter you take physiological psych later on mm -hmm. uh when you actually go into mm -hmm. like the minute processes of mm -hmm. uh, um motivation and movement okay i'm gonna i'm getting ahead of myself <laughs> but 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 yeah like so there's a part of your brain that fires and makes you feel good whenever you see your crush Mm -hmm. and um, it's there whether you know it or not but if you're interested in things like that then the biopsychological perspective would be interesting mm -hmm. and it's relevant and applicable because it's there every day all the time mm -hmm. it's it's where you live so if mm -hmm. you know how your how Our body works, works. yes right? yes and if you know how your body works then again actually you can get gain some measure of control mm -hmm. like very practically for example if you're nervous nervous is software mm -hmm. nervous is i am scared of this mm -hmm. or that i am i i'm um it's something nervous that's something i'll make you nervous um i guess teaching for the first time or teaching okay. your first class at the start of the semester all right, right. okay yeah. so i'm going to meet my students mm -hmm. and i am nervous mm -hmm. and nervousness is not just an idea mm -hmm. it's not just a feeling a feeling is not just an idea mm -hmm. that's floating in your psyche mm -hmm. a feeling is something you feel in your body mm -hmm. nervousness is your heart rate going up mm -hmm. nervousness is your breathing becoming short mm -hmm. because uh your um sympathetic state has been triggered okay mm -hmm. so if you know that oh nervousness is the fast beating of my heart the shortness of my breath the twisting of my stomach actually you can even take a step forward and say okay what can i do to calm down my nervousness oh i can calm down the muscles in my neck because i have i can actually do some practices and exercises that will help my mus neck muscles kind of calm down. I can do slow breathing to help my heart rate go down. And if I do that, I am able to have some measure of control over my body, the software, mm -hmm. so that I can have some measure of control over the um, over my body, the hardware, so that I can have some measure of control over my feelings, the software. So it really highlights that there's a connection between the mind and the body and by um, becoming more aware of processes, processes in our body, we can mm -hmm. start to uh, help our mind think in, uh, or help calm our nervousness or help us in yes. certain social relationships or, yes. yeah. Right. So, and you mentioned that the bio, uh, psychological perspective is like the hardware or getting to know the hardware aspect mm -hmm. so how would you say our evolution plays into that or how would that how human evolution or influences uh how we think how we feel how we behave now so okay so again the evolutionary perspective is like is it the younger, cooler brother? <laughs> it's not. I think it's more like um, uh, they're twins. Okay. Because uh, the evolutionary perspective naman, um, tells us about why, uh, why we might have developed certain things, um, whether it's uh, 
organs. Okay, why do we have an amygdala? <laughs> um, the thing inside our brain that acts as our warning system. Why is our nose, our olfactory system, separate from the rest of our sensory systems? You know that, <laughs> like the sense, the sensory, uh, the olfactory bulbs are not uh, exactly connected to the brain. Like for example, it just goes yeah. directly, or it goes, yeah, yeah, the so, sensory pathway. To the, the your sense of smell is different. It's its own particular pathway mm -hmm. versus all the other senses mm -hmm. that go to different parts of the brain. It goes directly to where it's processed. Mm -hmm. uh, it skips a lot of steps. So things like that. Why? Why? Why is our our sense of smell so special in that way? Mm -hmm. Or for um, so uh, the evolutionary perspective helps us understand that. Which I don't know. I guess to me that's interesting because. Mm -hmm kind of cool to know things like that mm -hmm. um but that's because i'm a nerd but mm -hmm. in the greater scheme of things also the evolutionary perspective allows us to see why we behave in certain ways mm -hmm. okay because behavior is adaptive and if we evolved in these behaviors over millennia mm -hmm. why is it adaptive why is it here how does it actually help us survive or what makes it not adaptive anymore and how should we change it to help us further survive mm -hmm. so if you look at groups of human beings okay um you can think about problematic behaviors mm -hmm. and i'll be very direct I, um when i do teach site, i talk about depression for example depression is a function of our biology and it's also a function of our um, societal processes. Mm -hmm. But it means that if we exhibit it now, we somehow evolved as human beings mm -hmm. to have this particular um, phenotype, mm -hmm. like expression mm -hmm. of behavior. What is it for? Right? Yeah. Something so upsetting and something so debilitating, what is it for? So the evolution comes and actually helps us answer that. Um, so one short answer is that depression is kind of like an overactive freeze mechanism. Right? Mm. We have our instincts, fight, flight, freeze. Mm. And depression is a very strong freeze behavior. Mm. But what is the freeze behavior for in the first place? It's to when there's a predator or a yes. threat. Mm. You, by, by freezing, it's, it stops the predator from thinking that you're a prey. And so it's a protective mechanism yes. also in a way. Yeah. Right. Right. So with this understanding of, okay, it's a protective mechanism, it actually really helps me understand mm -hmm. um, my clients, for mm -hmm. example, who have depression. Because, okay, you're, and it's kind of like a weird, kind of awkward way to be kinder to yourself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Depression is an overactive defense system that your body activates. Mm -hmm. So how do we teach you to actually, hey, it's okay now. How do we teach your body to kind of get out of that by telling your body, hey, it's okay now. You can come out of it. There's no threat. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe one way or another, we'll find out what is the threat. We'll find it. 
because it may not be obvious, maybe the threats millennia ago w- would be the, the dinosaur, the saber-toothed tiger, probably the mall. Now it's not that, it's the modern world. And I don't know what the Baboy Damo and the saber-toothed tigers are in the world right now. Maybe it's not quite so obvious, but if we understand these behaviors in that way, they get activated because of some hyperactive threat mode. It helps us understand the behavior period. Okay, now, now if we find out what the threats are and we deal with them, it will help that threat mode to lessen. So we get to that kind of understanding through the evolutionary perspective. So you mentioned, for example, depression is, aside from having an evolutionary function originally, that is also a product of culture. So how does um, culture, how is a social cultural perspective another important aspect of psychology mm-hmm. nowadays? So how, how does the culture influence a person's psychology yeah okay so um especially with what's happening to the world right now Mm -hmm. for example Mm -hmm. okay so we're in the middle of a pandemic that's why classes are like this um they're not classes it's now a podcast (laughs) um uh one phenomena that's really really very blatantly in our faces right now is the phenomena of not being able to see each other, mm-hmm. okay? disconnection. Mm-hmm. Um, and disconnection is something that um, is almost, um, if we look at human beings okay, and culture and how culture works okay, from a social cultural perspective, like Filipinos, we're very, um, we're very, very uh, collective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Asian cultures see, generally. Yeah, right? we like to see our friends. We like to see um, our different family members. Mm-hmm. We're, we're very connected, and all of a sudden now we cannot, mm-hmm. we cannot. Um, maybe before. Uh, there were families who used to visit each other mm-hmm. um, every weekend to visit the grandparents, but now you can't do that. Mm-hmm. So in with this, because we were that culture and now we are not, it puts us, uh, the people in this culture, under a particular kind of strain. And um, this is why they're this is one theory as to why there is a rise in cases of anxiety mm-hmm. uh, and depression and other mental health issues because we are now um, uh, struggling and stressed because of a change in our culture mm-hmm. okay? because we're not used to that. So that's one theory as to why, um, for example, there may be uh, growing cases of depression and anxiety right now yeah. because of that big change um, we are not acting as we usually do and again so that's kind of like uh, if we you go back to the evolutionary perspective it's like we're under threat mm-hmm. it's like our body knows there's a problem so it goes into this automatic mm-hmm. defense mode mm-hmm. um, so 
I mean, that's just one thing. We can also go to the fact that, oh, actually, this is not our first, uh, our first foray into disconnection. We have been moving towards disconnection for some time now because mm -hmm. of the rise of technology. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you know, the older generation will say, oh, the younger people, they're always on their mm -hmm. phones. They're always mm -hmm. like, uh, just they don't talk to each other anymore. They just mm -hmm. chat or not even chat, they just like each other's photos, la la la. So all of these ideas about how culture as a whole, mm -hmm. whether it's the culture of the internet, for example, the culture of a generation, for example, or just the culture of a city or a country, mm -hmm. these things affect our personality, mm -hmm. okay? And can also affect our mental health. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what the sociocultural perspective adds to the table. Mm -hmm. um, how our social norms or values or things like this, um, uh, events that affect mm -hmm. society as a whole, how this affects us as individuals too. Um, that's what the social sociocultural perspective uh, offers us. Wow. All right. So we've tackled the whys of um, why it's important to value psychology and why psychology has shaped the way it is uh, today. But let's start to go to the question, how do we begin to study psychology? Is psychology a science? Is it an art? So, and if ever it is a science, what makes it a science? Okay, <laughs> this is, I mean, I always find this question rather funny because mm -hmm. um, some parts of psychology mm -hmm. are almost going towards really the hard science, mm -hmm. okay? Where, um, for example, cognitive neuroscience is hardly even psychology, although mm -hmm. I refer to it a lot because it's interesting and it, and it uh, informs my understanding of people. It's no longer psychology, but it is kind of rooted in psychology where we look at the brain, okay? We look at the brain and we, we look at parts of the brain and activation of you know, particular parts of the brain and how that helps us understand uh, clinical syndromes like depression or bipolar disorder mm -hmm. or anxiety or trauma, okay? So some parts of psychology are informed or are like that already where measurements are really precise, mm -hmm. where it's almost like a hard science. Mm -hmm. But some parts of psychology, like where I live, um, it's really, it's not quite um, that easy to make precise measurements. Like for example, how do you really measure happiness? Of course, we can, we can make measures of it. Mm -hmm. We can try to define it, uh, make an operational definition mm -hmm. and um, find this or that. But at the end of the day, it is something that is hard to define and maybe differently defined to different people. So in that, it turns into something that's not quite hard, rather more soft mm -hmm. uh, as a science. Mm -hmm. uh, so it goes towards something that's more art. Mm -hmm. um, in my personal practice, for example, um, some psychologists and therapists are very structured Okay. They do uh, interventions like CBT, which is one, you know, rather modulized and very structured, but some do not. Okay. My own approach is very eclectic. I pull from 
I do pull from serenity. I pull from um, mindfulness uh, approaches. I pull from psychodynamic approaches. I look at developmental perspectives. I look at sociocultural perspectives. I also look at biopsychological <laughs> perspectives. So how I practice is kind of, I know for myself how mm -hmm. I practice psychology. It's really more towards art, because and I prefer it that way because I deal with people as individuals and they're complex mm -hmm. and it's magolo, and um, and therefore I find that I have to be rather like that too, flexible and complex mm -hmm. so that I can meet them in their complexities. So. Um, there's no one answer to that question. Mm -hmm. Some parts of it look more like the hard sciences. Some parts of it look um, more like the midland. Yeah. And some parts of it just look like, what is that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but, but still, even if it looks magulo and uh, very flexible and really more like an art, mm -hmm. as much as we can, we still draw from those hard, the hard mm -hmm. researches we are still informed by them. And that's, at the end of the day, what makes it a science still, rather mm -hmm. than just gawa gawa lang. Okay? Mm -hmm. That's why we still need to take an MA. We still need to be supervised by uh, a, a senior psychologist for several years before we practice on our own, mm -hmm. and so on. All right. So in learning to um, assess people behaviorally and learning how to, for example, operationalize behavior and certain um, uh, abstract concepts that we have, like mental health or depression. Um, in dealing with these kinds of people and situations, uh, in dealing with, um, in, when, especially since you did mention that psychology can be scientific, mm -hmm. um, how do we start treating our participants as human beings, especially since, uh, for example, in other sciences, we can experiment on animals, but we're actually dealing with uh, human beings here who are mm -hmm. uh, the whole, uh, greater than the sum of their parts. So mm -hmm. how do we deal with human beings ethically in ways that still allow us to advance our knowledge on human behavior and cognition? Okay. So I guess you're you're you want you're really asking about research and, mm -hmm. and research involving human participants, mm -hmm. um, and I guess I can answer that also along the same lines as how do we actually do therapy? Because like, yeah, like are we? It's it's not quite a guarantee of like you will be cured. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, actually, even in psychiatry, that's that's not really a guarantee. Mm -hmm. um, um, the medicines you take, we don't know. We don't know if that will work for you. It's actually trial and error. We'll try it for two weeks and then come back, report uh, your side effects, and then fix the dosage, go back after two weeks, check again, and so on. Um, so anything... Um, so here, it is much like... There's a lot of overlap between medicine and psychology. Okay? Um, and the basic rule really is much like um, medicine, which is do no harm. Okay? So in research and practice with human participants, um, um, 
that the rule really applies that at the end of the day um, um, there should be um, a greater contribution to good okay mm -hmm. e even uh, as compared to possible risks that may be involved in whatever it is that is uh, going to be done mm -hmm. um, so if it's research okay so most research will involve some risk, mm -hmm. but the good that's supposed to be you know, taken from it must be greater. Mm -hmm. okay. um, in therapy, uh, therapy is not easy. <laughs> and there are some risks, okay, mm -hmm. like going to therapy. Like sometimes people think, yeah, you know, it's your therapist going to make me feel good. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not always what happens. Sometimes your therapist is going to help you go through some really tough things okay and i hear that a lot from my clients actually <laughs> therapy is not easy but okay, at the end of the day you're supposed to get something more something greater that is actually a good so that's one okay even if it hurts it shouldn't harm you okay? uh we, we try our best to minimize the risks um so uh, my so, number one was the whole do no it's do like no do no harm, harm. Okay, or minimize the risks. Um, the second one is that um, the biggest uh, important thing that's needed in research and in therapy is informed consent. Mm -hmm. um, the client or whoever it is that's participating within the research has to be informed of um, what they're what they're taking part in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, in some research, there is some need for certain deception, okay? mm -hmm. just, just to uh, really measure the whatever we're trying to measure. Um, but in those particular cases, it has to be that after the, the participants have to be debriefed, mm -hmm. like they have to be told um, mm -hmm. about it after. Mm -hmm. And if there are any negative effects, uh, that they experienced, it is the responsibility of the researchers, the psychologists, to help them through, debrief them, and give them whatever they need. For example, if they got traumatized, they need to be helped through that trauma. Okay. But that's just a very extreme example. So in therapy as well as their consent to take part in the therapy. Right? So um, before you go to therapy, you kind of sign this thing called an informed consent form where it's the agreement between you and your therapist and it, it clarifies there what the responsibilities of the therapist are and what the responsibilities of the client are. So it's an agreement okay, mm -hmm. on both sides. And mm -hmm. so that's something that's needed um, to make sure that there's consent. And mm -hmm. so consent exactly. is a big part. Mm -hmm. um, what else? Okay, measures for the safety of the participants of a research and of course of the client are should always be there that's why you need to be licensed <laughs> to be a, a therapist um, um, you need to be trained to be a therapist mm -hmm. because those are the safety measures um, there are also for, in therapy there's also confidentiality where at the very beginning I say, I tell my client, everything we talk about is confidential, except if you are in danger of harm to yourself 
are in danger of harming others. Mm -hmm. So at the very beginning, I tell them that because that's a safety measure. That's a very big safety measure that I am putting for their safety. Mm-hmm. And also mine. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. So the the researchers and the psychologists themselves also have to put boundaries on how to, because uh, it's very delicate dealing with uh, other people. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Are there, so, all right. So that's how we know how to deal safely and effectively with other human participants as we're conducting research in psychology and helping other people's in practice. So uh, I guess that rounds out our discussion for now on how we've uh, identified the whys, uh, why psychology is very important, how we study it, and how we can um, sort of take care of the people who are involved in advancing our knowledge in psychology. So I guess that starts to wrap up our episode. And yay! yay. Okay. First one. Well, <laughs> I hope that was helpful. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we really just talked about like why just laying the groundwork for everything. And, yes. Uh, why it might be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess now it's really about do you have a you have questions that maybe you'd like to ask? Mm-hmm. Um, so you have your ways of sending those questions in yeah. and maybe, um, yeah, Ina and I yeah. can also answer those next time. Yes. And every week we'll be doing that. And next week we'll be going, we'll be, these next few weeks, we'll be going more in depth into different aspects of psychology, like the biopsychological perspective and personality and human development. So everyone's going to stay tuned okay for that all right all right so okay thank you so that's it for today thank you Lina. thank you mom Pia. okay